0: You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. We've made it. We've made it to week three of Advent as we're welcoming the coming of Christ into our life. And, and today we, write, we light the third candle, the pink candle, the only one that has a firm word, joy. Can everybody say joy with me? Joy. While you're standing, let's read our sermon text. Mark chapter 14. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival or there may be a riot among the people. While he, that's Jesus, was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, and as he sat at the table, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment, of nard, and she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head, and some of them who were there said to one another in anger, why was this ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were greatly pleased. He promised to give them, and they promised to give him money. So he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can find your seats. Well, tomorrow we go into the single digits of shopping days until Christmas. Today we got ten days until Christmas. Christmas to shop, but tomorrow, single digits. And it just seems like it's that time of thinking about gifts, of buying gifts, of purchasing gifts. Everything is focused in on gifts. And so I've been thinking about the best gifts that I've ever received. Have you ever done that before? Make a list of the absolute top best gifts you've ever received. And I've, I've also been thinking about what it is that makes for a good gift. I don't know what would be on your list of what would make for a good gift, but it have to be appropriate to the person. Maybe it's something that they want or even need, but it has to fit their personality. Well, I want to tell you about one of the best gifts that I ever received. Way back when Don and I were first married, we had no money. And By no money, I mean no money. Tight budget, just just barely making it. We were in college, we were married, we both had jobs, we were both students supporting ourselves. Well, my mountain bike got stolen. The mountain bike that I brought to college. And those of you that know how much I love cycling, you will know that's a problem for me to be without my bike. So I'm trying to figure out how do I replace my bike with no money? and I really didn't have many options so the plan that I came up with was to donate plasma. Anybody familiar with this? Okay now if you're not familiar this is like donating blood but it it takes longer time and and uh, you actually get paid because there's medical value to pulling out your blood, stripping the plasma out of it and then putting what's left of your blood back. I'm a pretty small guy, and it's pretty hard for me to give blood anyway. kind of works me over. It's an exciting adventure whenever I'm giving blood. So giving plasma was always an exciting adventure, but I was committed because I just needed a little bit more, you know, $50 at a time donating to get plasma. Well, come to my birthday, and Donna gives me a birthday gift. A brand new GT mountain bike. Not, not a used. I would never had a new one. But she bought me a brand new GT mountain bike. Okay, well, I don't know how it is for you whenever you get a gift that catches you by surprise that's a bit extravagant. And it's like, oh no, you shouldn't have. Well, this catches me by surprise. And I'm wondering, how in the world did you do this? Because I keep the books. How is it that we're doing? Did you put this on a credit card? What? So very quickly, I'm going to ask her the question of, okay, well, how did this happen? And she said, well, several things. I mean, you're going to have to give your plasma money that you've earned donating plasma up to this point. And I've talked to my parents and your parents, and I've kind of cobbled together some money. And, oh, there's just this one other little thing that I've been doing. Oh, really? Our budget was $45 a week for groceries. She was underspending our grocery budget. And then when she would go to the grocery store, she would overwrite the check and take $2 or $5 and set it aside. That's a pretty sneaky way to get around the guy keeping the books and paying attention to our money. But what a kind gift. Right? It, it's overwhelming. It's still one that I think about and realize that sneakiness, that I've got to keep my eye on her, of showing such great love. Now, my, my family was a little different when it came to giving of gifts, because with gifts, in our family, it was all about equality. Making sure everything weighed the same, right? It's essentially... My sister and I were gonna be counting gifts, so my mom would make sure that there were a set number of gifts for each of us to open that were equal. And my mom also, in weighing the scales of justice when it comes to Christmas time or birthday time, would try to spend the same amount of money on those same number of gifts. It's all about being equal. So that's kind of the, the home that I grew up in and was thankful for a mother that would work hard Probably that's just what happens when you're a second-born daughter, and you're always seeing your older brother, in her case, getting the bigger, more adult gifts. Well, our, our story today is about a gift, and it's an interesting story that comes to us from Mark's gospel, and Mark is known for being pretty brilliant in how he puts together a story very simply and very straightforward. One of the tricks that he uses is to start a story and then put a story right in the middle of it. It's book-ended, or some people will call it a sandwich. Today, I'm just going to call it an ice cream sandwich. So you've got one story that starts, then a, a bigger story, and then that story ends, and each of them is helping interpret the other. Because what Mark is doing is creating a manual a narrative manual for how one follows Jesus, what that looks like, how one can be a disciple. So the opening, the top layer of this sandwich is a plot. The religious leaders, people like me, who talk and are supposedly experts in the, the religious uh, annals and laws and Bible, right? They are tired of Jesus. And they're operating under stealth to catch and kill Jesus. And they're so sneaky and so crafty that they don't want to do it during the festival because there was a big festival going on, the Passover festival, the first of a seven-day festival of unleavened bread, where all of the Jews would get together and have a big holiday meal and remember. They would remember that time when they were slaves in Egypt and when God through Moses, led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and across the Red Sea. And this was a very important time every year to celebrate. And It was also a politically unstable time. Because as they're remembering being slaves, they start to look around and realize, hey, we're slaves to Rome. And so there was a time of political unrest. And these religious leaders are so sneaky and crafty that they don't want to bobble the waters. Well, that's the top chocolate layer. The bottom chocolate layer of this sandwich is one of Jesus' own disciples. One of the twelve. One of the apostles who partners with them and goes out to betray them and hand Jesus over to them. Well, how in the world do we get from that chocolate sandwich to the bottom? Well, that's where we get the story that's in the middle, the ice cream the story of a woman, a woman in Bethany. There's a little village or a little town just about three kilometers to the east of Jerusalem called Bethany. That's where Jesus would go and hang out. It was kind of his Airbnb when he was in the Jerusalem area. His friends, Martha and Mary and Lazarus were in that town. And so he was something, a well-known commodity in Bethany. And he would go and he would stay there. Well, he's Uh, Having dinner in the house of Simon the leper, that doesn't mean much to us, but for Jesus to be a rabbi in the house of a leper, that doesn't make much sense. There are some people that even think that Bethany might have been one of the three communities that was exclusively lepers, where they all stayed. So here is Jesus in the wrong part of town where no good rabbi would be and where the chief priests and the scribes that are out to get him are not gonna show up and he's having dinner in the house of Simon the leper. Maybe he's healed Simon. But here is this dinner in which a woman breaks into the company of men and pulls out an alabaster jar of perfume, breaks it open, and dumps it on Jesus' head, in the presence of everyone. Now, this alabaster is pretty valuable. It's, It's a rare form of gypsum, and, I mean, we could buy it on Amazon. It doesn't seem rare to us, but she breaks this open, and what's inside of it is a perfume that you could only buy in India that cost one entire year's worth of wages. Dumped on his head, Fragrant in a moment. If we step back and pano the room, things get a little rough. The people that are there are quite angry at what has just taken place. And they begin to speak up and question what's going on. Why this waste? Why this excessive and lavish waste of perfume? And not only do they question vocally, but they begin to speak and second guess what could have been done with the money from this alabaster jar of perfume, right? They're second guessing her question and then they begin to scold her and rebuke her and tell her what she should have done. They ream her out. And there sits Jesus. Everyone's eyes and noses are on Jesus. He sits in this fragrant mess of being anointed, and they wonder what he is going to say and what he is going to do. We all know what any good rabbi would do he would have stopped her, he would have said no, but he doesn't. And he stays there and watches the responses around the room of anger questioning, and second-guessing, and even a verbal scolding. And finally, Jesus speaks up. Leave her alone. Back off. Don't trouble this woman. Now, I'm somewhat surprised by this action of Jesus. And if you're familiar with this story, it's easy to lose the surprise of this story. Because if Jesus really were a good rabbi, he would not have let her break open that jar. He would have stopped her, reallocated the money to a different account, spread that money further in in helping the poor and helping people that really need it, but he doesn't. You know, even the fact that people are actually saying these things out loud is a surprise. How many times in Mark have we had this little line where, Well, everyone thought he was crazy, but no one said anything. It happens over and over again. But here, everyone knows the answer. And it's not just the religious leaders, it's his own disciples that say, What in the world is going on? This is over the top. Well, as Jesus begins to speak further, he gives lots of answers. What she's done is good, it's a good service. He's referencing alms. They would give alms during the Passover time. He says, yes, this is an extended and lavish gift for me. And if you're so concerned about the poor, then go out and help them. Better yet, wait till I'm gone and then go help the poor. You're always going to have them with you. But the most fragrant interpretation that Jesus gives comes in verse 8. Look again at what Jesus says. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. She does what she could in anointing Jesus for his death. This is another one of those whiplash moments. What do you mean for your death? You're not dead yet. You don't get anointed before your death. Everyone's confused. You see, in a gift like this, Jesus knows that he is as good as dead. If you're going to come to this part of town, if you're going to let a woman approach you in this way, if you're going to let her just break open a lavish gift like this on you, if you're going to be in the house of a leper, and if you don't already know it, people are trying to kill you, Jesus, and they're powerful, Jesus knows in this moment He's as good as dead. But he takes what happens and begins to interpret it in a new way. I don't think she even knew. Whenever people give lavish gifts, are they calculating? Yeah, maybe sometimes. Wondering what they'll get back? Are they thinking about the reward or if people will like them? Yeah, maybe. But a lot of times it's just a lavish gift, just given to show great love. I don't know if she knew what was going on. But Jesus is kind of like a parent. You know, a parent who gets one of these crafty things for Christmas, don't quite exactly know what it is or which side is up, and, and you treat it like gold in the presence of your child? That's kind of what Jesus does. Because he takes this gift and he says, what she's done has anointed me for my burial. Now this combines two amazing things because this woman has anointed him as Messiah. That's what she's done. She's anointed his head with oil. Now this story shows up in a variety of ways in the Gospels. Matthew and Mark, pretty much the same. John, we find out it's very similar and it may be that this is Mary the woman who sits at Jesus' feet, a resident of Bethany. Luke's account, it's probably a different story because it's at the front of Jesus' ministry and his feet are anointed with her tears and she's a sinful woman. But, But this woman, this woman, he takes and he interprets whatever she has done and said, she has anointed my head as the Messiah, as the King. And let me tell you what that means. I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over and betrayed. He takes it and makes it mean something so much more. This is where I wish a great movie maker would take Mark and turn it into a cinematic masterpiece to really capture the things that are going on in this gift exchange. There's a few things that are worth highlighting here. One, is the great importance of women in the Gospel of Mark. Mark highlights women. He shows how well they are at showing faith and giving gifts and expressing what the life of discipleship is. The women get it. They get Jesus. They're willing to give their all to Jesus. The men are the ones with names. The men are the ones with power and in position. And they're the ones working in stealth to work away, work work against Jesus. Or disciples who are stumbling their way along with Jesus. I mean, think about it. If you were trying to make a case in the first century for the significance of Jesus, you would probably not lift up women. Because women were not treated very well in the first century. I know that's harder for us to think about today, But they were not allowed to vote. They were not not given status. They were second class in every way. And here is Mark, and more importantly, Jesus, showing these women as the ideal disciples. The best followers. I mean, think about it. Do you remember the woman that was bleeding? Who thinks, oh, if I can just touch Jesus in Mark 5. And in the crowd, she touches him and tries to sneak away. And Jesus won't let her sneak away. Who touched me? The men think he's crazy. He calls her out. She tells the whole truth, and he says, "Daughter, your faith has made you well." And what about that Syrophoenician woman who just wanted her daughter to be healed, and goes to Jesus, and Jesus is kind of mean. Well, we don't need to heal anyone who's a half-breed dog, is essentially what Jesus playfully says. And that woman does not give up. She says, yes, but even the dogs deserve the crumbs under the table. And Jesus turns to her and says, your faith has made your daughter well. Or what about the woman, the widow woman, who's coming into the temple treasury as people are giving their large gifts and being seen, she gives in mere pennies. And Jesus points her out and says, this woman She has given out of her poverty all that she had. That's an amazing tribute. Getting now to this woman in chapter 14, the woman who gives this lavish gift that's worth much more than pennies. Dumping it upon Jesus' head, pouring it out. That is amazing. It's amazing to see how these women are in such a stark contrast to the men. But what about another gift that happens in this story? Do we forget about Judas? He's the one who literally hands over Jesus. He's got a gift of his own. He probably represents the frustration in the room with this kind of Messiah who's not doing what he should be doing at every level and pushes Jesus to the extreme never mind these religious leaders are trying to kill Jesus in stealth, never mind these same religious leaders will take that widow's dollars, those pennies, put it together with other money, and pay Judas off to kill Jesus. Never mind that, but look at how Jesus is handling this, and let's give him a hard time, and let's give this woman a hard time. This is a cinematic moment, when this woman anoints Jesus as Messiah and King, and he says, yes, this is preparation for death. It's an amazing turn where he takes even Judas's gift and makes it good. Isn't that interesting? This handing over of Jesus, God wraps up through Jesus' own words and says, this is a gift, this handing over in which I'm going to give you my life and I'm going to give it to you permanently. Wow. It's powerful how these stories come together. Well, then another thing hit me besides woman and the importance of women and besides Judas and his gift that Jesus transforms. I guess I just thought about the gift itself. They're all critiquing her on her gift. Her gift. It's not their gift, it's her gift to Jesus. They've got no business telling her what to do with how she will offer herself to Jesus. That is for her to decide. Wow, I mean that takes, takes me sideways there. It makes me think about my own gifts, my own giving, of money, time, of relationship. All these contributions that we focus in on during this time. What is our gift? What are we giving to Jesus? What does that look like for us? Does that mean we're going to look at the last year and think about our contributions, think about what we've given, and say, you know, God has blessed me. I'm going to contribute more deeply to the church or to a nonprofit? Is this a time when we look at our own blessings? and say, you know, this is a chance for me to give in a new way next year of my time in ministry and service in a nonprofit or in the church. I think this is a discussion that's worth having and it's very important because right now we focus in on a lot a lot about gifts and maybe not getting what we want or maybe getting all we want. A lot of times we're counting our gifts and wanting to know, am I getting what's equal and what's fair? And it's easy for this time of year to be about consumption and what we get instead of about what we give. Whenever we're actually getting what we want, it's easy to get entitled as we're able to click on Amazon and get the alabaster jar. Oh yeah, we can get that no problem. What's the big deal for this anointing woman? Whenever it's so easy for us, it's easy to feel entitled like we deserve it. But in this time, in a time when we're focused on what we might get, why don't we flip that around and think about and begin to count the number of gifts that we're giving, what we're giving away. What is the gift that you are going to give to Jesus? What's that going to look like for you? What's going to be the costly gift that will transform your not just your holiday season, but who you are before God? There's a story that I heard from Larry Phillips many years ago. It's a story about when he took his family to dinner, and his six-year-old boy asked to pray at the meal. They're out in public, they're in a restaurant, and the boy begins to pray, God is good, God is great. Thank you for the food. Please help mom to give us some ice cream. And liberty and justice for all. (laughs) Amen. (laughs) And everybody did just what you guys did. They're chuckling and laughing. And there's a woman at the table next to them that says, yep, that's what's wrong with our world today. Kids don't know how to pray. And the boy heard that comment, didn't hear the laughter and joy, focused in on it, on it, and said, Dad, did I do something wrong here? And the dad takes the boy in his arms, who's crying, and says, No, it's okay to ask for what you want. God will hear you. And they, they get interrupted by an old man who walks up and says, Well, I heard your prayer, and I happen to know that God hears your prayer too. And maybe... If more people would ask for ice cream, they'd learn that sometimes it's just good for the soul. And the man walked away. Well, when the tab came, the dad ordered ice cream for the whole table. And the ice cream came, and the boy sat there with his ice cream, and he just was frowning at it. Everyone else had already torn into their ice cream, but the boy just looked at that ice cream and he looked around. No one was looking at him except for his dad wondering why he's not tearing into his ice cream. The boy picks up his ice cream, goes across to the other table and sets it in front of the woman and says, here, this is for you. Ice cream's good for the soul. And sits down. How is it that we can give a gift in a moment, that will change someone's world. Right? That ice cream melts and is gone. The GT mountain bike that had no suspension anything got stolen years later. It's gone. In this moment of this woman's costly gift where she pours this fragrance over Jesus, the fragrance is long since gone but we are still telling this story. We are still proclaiming good news about the lavishness and the grace of God poured out from our lives. Let's pray. God, you are incredibly good to us. You've given us not only our lives, but you've given us every possession, every relationship. And God, we're not often satisfied because there's good and there's bad in what you've given us. Would you help us? Would you help us as we seek to be givers of gifts? Would you help us to be people of joy who are ready to transform this world by our acts and by our actions and our attitudes? May you be glorified May You be praised. And may we be a people of lavishly glorifying You. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.